there are lots of effects of climate change. Some are speculative, some are certain, and I like to focus really on the certain effects. Uh, you know, we can argue about tornadoes. Let's think about the things that we know are going to happen. So we know temperatures are going to go up. Uh, we know heat waves are going to increase. I mean, those are as certain as science can get about anything. Um, we know sea level is going to rise. And for a state with a big coastline, that's a, bit, that's a problem. Uh, we know the oceans are going to become more acidic. You know, again, you can take that to the bank. Um, we know that precipitation patterns are going to change. And we can go into details about exactly how they're going to change. But there's really fundamental physics that control all of those things. Um, and, you know, physics isn't partisan. You know, it, it is what it is, and uh, the world obey, will obey the laws of physics, and Texas will experience that. And Texas is also, in a sense, uniquely situated to be subject to natural variability. Um, we're, we're one of the few places in the globe that's subject to influences from El Nino, from longer-term variations of the Pacific and Atlantic. Uh, there's also been enormous land use changes across the United States. As a result of that, uh, for example, temperatures in Texas are, are just barely now getting above where they've been historically over the past hundred years, uh, more so in West Texas than e in East Texas. And so Texas really hasn't experienced um, a, a strong climate change signal yet compared to many other parts of the world. Um, and of course, uh, climate change is one of many things affecting Texas in the future. And going forward, um, it's it's... I generalize by saying it's, it's, a, it's the second most important thing you should consider when you're doing long-range planning about anything. For example, for water, population doubling is going to be a bigger impact than climate change, but still climate change is something that needs to be factored into the analysis. So Dr. Nielsen-Gammon, are you saying that, the, that more is to come for Texas? We haven't quite seen the effects yet of climate change, but it could be coming more. In the yeah, most, uh, it's, it's not, it's not clear scientifically yet why the southeast United States is one of the three parts of the globe that don't have yet an emerging long-term trend, if you look at the past century. But most of those explanations say that it's temporary. So either, either we'll get on pace with the rest of the world, or we might actually catch up and have an accelerated rate of temperature rise. Uh, and what but, does that mean for Texans? Let's talk about person's everyday life here in Austin or wherever it may be, what does that mean for them? What should they be prepared for? Well, um, the, as, as Andy mentioned, the temperature, temperature change is the, is the biggest factor. Um, people are familiar with high temperatures. Um, summertime, wintertime temperatures increased by a few degrees. Um, basically means that a day that was uh, uh, got up to 100 degrees in, in 50 years, the same weather conditions might produce a, a day that gets up to 104, 105. Um, the, the small changes don't have a big impact because there's so much natural variability. So um, we, but it's sort of an add-on factor. We, we did a study on the 2011 heat wave where temperatures were five degrees Celsius, uh, five degrees Fahrenheit above, above what they were uh, on average historically. And really, only about 20% uh, of that was attributable to, to the overall rise of temperatures. But for things that are on the edge of survivability, trees and you know, ranchers who are trying to make sure their stock plant survives long enough, it has an impact. So it's mainly on the margins and the extreme weather events where things could have gotten by before, but they'll start to not be able to. Yeah, and I would add one thing, and that is I think it's, it's a bit wrong to think of Texas climate 
affecting, affecting as being the dominant effect for Texans. Now, certainly, if it's 110 degrees in College Station, that affects me. But if there's a massive drought in China and there's political destabilization, that you know, we live in an integrated world. Uh, a drought somewhere will affect you. If uh, Miami gets flooded and they have to build seawalls, who's going to pay for that? Of course, uh, I am. You know, and so is everyone else. So I mean, we live in an integrated world. Climate change somewhere affects everybody. And so I don't. I think it's wrong to sort of say Texas climate change affects Texas to the exclusion of other things. And the big changes that will occur in other places that are already occurring in other places are already beginning to have an effect. And and this will be something the other panelists can comment on more, but. The impact of climate change is not just what the climate does, it's what society does in response to the perceived threats of climate change, what sort of policies happen, what constraints there are on energy, and that sort of thing, which Texas is a big energy state, so that's going to have a big impact and is having an impact already. It's a good thing we have two uh, policymakers on this panel, so I think they want to weigh in. <laughs> uh, uh, Nina, uh, good to be with the other panelists today, and I appreciate the audience's interest today in this subject as well. Uh, what I wanted to point out, and I appreciate what the other panelists have said today, they've mentioned uncertainty, they've mentioned variableness, and I, I agree and concur with that. Uh, what we have learned, and I think others would acknowledge, is that there's no correlation necessarily between climate change and extreme weather. And we've seen in Texas, we've had flooding, we've had droughts, and so forth. Uh, but the United Nations, uh, I see, it's the uh, international... Uh, panel on climate, climate change, change yeah. right, has, said, has come out and said there is little likelihood that there is a correlation between extreme weather and climate change. And these are regularly occurring uh, extreme weather events. And in fact, there are actually fewer hurricanes, fewer tornadoes, less flooding, less droughts uh, in recent uh, decade or two. So while we need to be very uh, concerned about the weather in Texas, there's not necessarily a co direct correlation with climate change. I might add we passed a bill in the House recently that came out of the science committee that I chair, uh, we are trying to develop a better forecasting model that will help Texas and will help others across the United States. Europe is actually ahead of us in their climate predictions and, and extreme weather predictions, and we're trying to catch up with them. So I hope some of the legislation that we have processed will help Texans in the future. Well, Dr. Nielsen-Gammon, I wanted to ask actually what you think of that, because we, we spoke back in May after those Labor Day floods. And I, I, you know, in our conversation, I believe you did say some of what we're seeing with this extreme weather and extreme rainfall is consistent with climate predictions. So what do we know about that? Yeah, the, it's, it's, it's um, the, I mean, the press really oversimplifies things. They, they, and, and a lot of people are saying extreme weather is increasing globally. And, and as, as Chairman Smith says, it's really a lot more complicated than that. There are a lot of, lot of the things we think of as extreme weather events, such as tornadoes, hurricanes where there's not, um, in some cases, there's an expectation scientifically, but there's not, a, there's not a signal that's emerged yet. In other cases, we scientists don't even know what, which way things might change if they do change. Um, other, other things, there are a couple of things that I'll comment on that, that are pretty, pretty well established, such as um, heat waves. As the temperature goes up, you get more extremes. That's a sort of a natural consequence. And also, the other factor is, is, is heavy rainfall. Now, in, in May, we had, um, on average across the state, over nine inches of rainfall. Um, the previous record was about six and a half inches. It was just, just shattered it. And of course, it was, it's tempting any time you get something super unusual to say, well, something super unusual must have caused it. But my rule of thumb is, if it's really unusual, then everything must have worked 
together to do it. In this case, uh, you know, large-scale developing El Nino seems to have been a big factor. There's already been scientific studies that have shown that. The only aspect of the flooding which, which I think scientifically can be attributed at this point with justification to climate change are some of the intense localized rainfall events because um, we have observations that, that show that the very heavy events on a one-day time scale are increasing across the United States. The computer models indicate that those things should be happening because of climate change. And the third prong, which I think is necessary for a stool, is that you have a physical reason which makes sense, which is the warmer the atmosphere and the warmer the oceans, the greater the amount of water vapor. And the way rainfall works, you lift up the air, the water vapor condenses, it produces rain. So, uh, yeah, you can't really generalize about climate change and extreme weather. You have to look at every single process separately and even break them apart. And if I might jump in, I think, you know, another one of the challenges is that even though we have what we may think of as very extensive data, what we have today is a lot more detailed than what we had even 15, even 20 years ago, frankly, understanding what's going on. And, and for example, if you look at the, the flooding we had and the drought we've had, and this is very um, extreme and unique circumstances for most of us, but it's actually pretty similar to what happened the, the drought of the 50s when you had the drought and it broke with flood and then the drought returned almost immediately and then you had, as tends to be the case in Texas, is that drought ends with flood. And so you have to be cautious to make sure that you're looking at those correlations that you see and attribute them to the right thing. And there's a lot of uncertainty. And I guess the bottom line is recognizing that the climate models as well as the, the weather prediction models are extremely complex. Unfortunately, they're not as complex as Earth is because these systems are extremely complex, which is part of what we're all striving is to get a better handle on understanding what these different impacts and inputs are going to have, what are the natural components to that, what are the man-made components to that, and how do we make sure, as I like to say, we're chasing the right rabbit. Because when you're in time of seeing the drought we've had, we've definitely seen an increase in temperature. Uh, you know, the, the real question is how much and, and is it man-made and how much. And so you have these, these things that are in place. And if you're taking correlations at the time that your temperature is the highest it's been since you've been taking all these observations, you're going to naturally they're going to uh, correlate with the higher temperatures because you're having those extreme events. If we had been doing the same thing with the same level of data back in the 50s, we would likely have found other correlations, which not to say that it's wrong, but it points to the fact that Dr. Gammon, Nielsen Gammon was talking about is that you need to understand the mechanisms behind that, the science behind that. And ultimately, I think we need to invest more in proving those scientific theories and understanding better because there's a lot of uncertainty about how much additional moisture is going into the climate. And I've even seen some papers that question whether or not increasing moisture in the atmosphere has a greater positive or negative forcing on, on climate. And I don't know that that's completely resolved, but those are huge issues because 90 to 95% of the greenhouse effect is due to water vapor in the atmosphere. And so that's, that's one of the big drivers that we have to get right. And so I think it's good that we're having these kinds of discussions about that science because I think ultimately that's gonna be where we get better answers to, to understand how to make better policy. Mr. Marson, I think you want to jump yes. in. The question is, what do we do when there's uncertainty? Uh, let me start with the UN report. I'm glad the congressman cited that report, but he cited only one of many conclusions. And that report says global warming's happening. There's going to be terrible effects no matter what we do now. And if we don't do something soon, 
it could be catastrophic. So what I'm concerned about is our policymakers are ignoring 95% of that report and relying upon a paragraph or two to justify not doing anything. And yes, we do not know how bad it's going to be. Uh, there is uncertainty. But why don't we do what you do with our lives? Act to have an insurance policy. If you don't know how bad it is, invest some in smart things. In fact, many things we would do for climate change, we ought to be doing any event, like more energy uh, efficiency, for instance, that actually saves bills, uh, saves electric bills, and will reduce other pollutants in the air. Chairman Smith. Can I respond to that real quickly? Um, let me go back to the beginning, because I know we have good scientists with us today, and just remind everybody of what the scientific method really is. A good scientist is going to admit that, one, they want their hypotheses challenged. A good scientist is going to say uh, there are a lot of variables. A good scientist is going to say, I have little certainty about anything because I continue to push and and continue to challenge what I'm doing myself. Now, in the case of climate change, a couple, of, a couple of things. If we were to totally eliminate all carbon emissions in the United States completely, that would have an impact of less than one degree centigrade on global warming. If the present global uh, uh, weather plan and climate change plan was totally implemented, it would have an impact of one one-hundredth of a degree over the next 20 years. So to me, there are so many bigger things that we should be considering. We ought to be talking about, and a lot of things we can't do anything about. Yes, human activity plays a part. So do natural cycles. Uh, so does the tilt of the Earth's axis and the direction of the Earth's axis and the orbit of the Earth over which we have little control. And so I think we just need to keep in perspective that no matter what we do, it's not going to have that much of a dramatic impact on global warming. What I'd like to see us do, and what I think the solution really is, is better and more technology, particularly energy technology. And we ought to have faith in that technology. We've had faith in that technology throughout the history of the United States, no matter what it might be, climate change or anything else. And just, you know, keep the faith. Remember that, uh, for example, we went from the Wright brothers to putting 12 humans on the moon in 60 years from 1903 to 1963. In the last 35 years, we've gone from having a computer the size of a small room uh, to having more capacity than that computer on an iPhone. And so I think technology, not picking winners and losers, not exaggerating, but recognizing the variables, recognizing the uncertainties, uh, and working together on trying to develop that technology will ultimately uh, pay off and, and have a better result. So uh, I think there's general agreement that uh, there are solutions out there. I just don't want the solutions to be harmful to the American people. I don't want them to be unnecessarily costly. I don't want them to be burdensome. I don't want them to uh, uh, result in lost jobs. So I'd like to see us go forward sort of with the spirit of cooperation, uh, and, but also with the recognition that we don't have any certainty at all. I mean, people who predict the future um, are not scientists. Anybody who predicts what the future is going to be uh, in the year uh, 2185 years from now, the only thing you can say for certain about that prediction is it's going to be wrong. So I think a little humility is in order and a little recognition that we can uh, try to adjust to some of the situations that we have, but there's no certainty as the answer. 
Chairman Shaw, you wanted to add something? Thank you. And I want to uh, pick up on something that uh, Jim mentioned with regard to uh, sort of that no regrets approach or doing some things that you want to be doing anyway and point out that we're doing some of that. <clears throat> Before I do that, you, just, you may notice that this is a very, uh, I guess, somewhat nervous panel. I don't know if you all know this or not, but there's a big game this afternoon, and some of us are really having a hard time focusing on the topic here as opposed to how the A&M Alabama game is going to turn out. So, <laughs> so, but that being said, uh, in all seriousness, from the standpoint of uh, looking at trying to find ways to do the right thing and move forward, that's something I, I think that there's a lot of room for that. It's something I've advocated the entire time that I've been at the commission is that we need to find ways to incentivize greater energy efficiency, energy innovation, but make so, sure we do so in a way that doesn't undermine our ability to have economic strength. And, and here's part of the, my thinking with that regard. Energy efficiency is something that, quite frankly, especially with NERCOT, the Electric Reliability of Council of Texas, which is where about 80-plus percent of the state of Texas has their electric grid regulated, that is an energy-only competitive market. What that means is if you build generation capacity within that market, you only get paid if you can generate electrons cheaper than the other people that are in the market so that you get the bid and you can generate electrons. That process is great, both from the standpoint of it, it uses the market to drive down the cost of those electric utilities, but also it incentivizes greater efficiencies because if you can create more electrons with the same fuel than your competitor, you're going to be able to do so cheaper typically, especially in the long haul. And you're certainly also then going to reduce your emissions of other pollutants of concern, which is a great concern for myself. And so we, we have some processes in place uh, through a lot of different programs. Texas has been a leader. We're now the leading producer of wind energy in the state, and, excuse me, in the U.S., and I think we'd be the fourth or fifth largest producer if we were a country. And no, I'm not suggesting we secede from the union. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different panel that we'll be on later. <laughs> but, but seriously, uh, there, there is... Uh, a process that's in place that can use the market to incentivize that. And here's the key point I think that's really important. And that is if we do that where we let the market forces help to foster this moving along, we maintain our economic strength, which helps us to deal with the, the uh, climate variability that we've had and we've always had. You know, if you look historically, Texas is a, is a state that has droughts and floods uh, and, 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 and sometimes in between. But it's always been variable, and we need to make sure as agencies and, and, and all the plans that we make that we're planning for that variability. And a couple of things that you notice from an environmental and a planning standpoint is that wealthy countries do a lot to take care of their environment and to plan. Poor countries that are having a hard time feeding their citizens don't focus so much on taking care of the environment and doing the plans for the future. They're planning how to put food on the table now. And we've been blessed. We're a country that has great blessings in that standpoint. But we need to make sure that we're leaders in that cause because the things that we do to incentivize and encourage greater energy efficiencies and new energy technologies won't just help us in this state. They'll help us across the U.S. And quite frankly, I think they'll help us globally because if we, can, if we create a better widget to get more energy out of the, the fuel we burn and, and to create those newer, cleaner fuel sources, if we can do that in a cost-effective manner, then the Indias and Chinas and others will, instead of building a new coal-fired power plant every week, they will need to adopt those new technologies to remain economically competitive. And I'm convinced that's the way we bring the global emissions of greenhouse gases and other pollutants down, is by incentivizing technological development so that we have those new ways of doing business that are both environmentally friendly and economically prosperous. Well, let's talk about um, what I think we're getting to, which is the Clean Power Plan, which is the Obama administration's major proposal for addressing climate change and reducing carbon emissions from power plants. Um, 
How feasible do we think it is for Texas to comply with this clean power plan? Uh, yesterday, the Electric Reliable, uh, Reliability Council of Texas came out with a report saying that you know, we could see electricity bills go up 16% by 2030, excuse me, uh, from clean power plan. Is that a lot? Is that too much? Is that not as much as we thought? What, what do you think, Mr. Marston? Well, let me start with uh, a lot of independent studies about who would win and who would lose under the clean power plan. There are some states that will lose, some states that will win. The winners have the following characteristics. A lot of natural gas, a lot of solar resources, a lot of wind resources, relatively little investment in energy efficiency today, and geology where you can store carbon underground for a long time. Anybody want to guess what state has the most of those? Now, uh, rather than uh, attack this plan, state officials in Texas ought to stand up and say, hallelujah. Uh, if I were the governor of Kentucky or, or West Virginia, I'd be troubled some. Uh, but if you're in Texas, this is great. Let me first say the 16% number in the ERCOT analysis, when you read it, is the high scenario. They assume the most expensive way to get there. By the way, 16% six, over 30 or over 15 years is not very, very much, less than 1% a year when you talk about compound interest. Very small number. We've seen increases of more than that in six months in Texas, so not a big number. And number two, uh, they do say that we can get a long way down there just by doing what we're doing now. We did a study on uh, how far along the way Texas was toward meeting the Clean Power Plan based on business as usual, using ERCOT numbers. We're going to get 88% there unless our legislature screws it up like they tried to this last session. But if the legislature didn't screw it up, we're almost there already. All we got to do is 12% more. And frankly, we think what Texas ought to do is over-comply, because we can do it cheaply, that 12% and beyond, and then sell our excess allowances to Kentucky and West Virginia and other states that have a harder, more expensive way of getting there. Chairman Shaw, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. And, and I'd like to, to you know, point out a couple of things. One, uh, there, there is a lot of progress that's been made, and certainly, uh, in some ways, you look at it, there's it, the, the, the bridge to where the clean power plan would take us may not be as large as it once looked to be. Uh, I, I think that it is likely, when you look at the ERCOT's uh, predictions of a 16% increase, uh, they also don't include a lot of the other ancillary costs associated with that, uh, which would likely drive it much higher in some cases. But most importantly, I think from the standpoint of Texans and the health of Texans is the time frame that's associated with that and the necessity of having it federally enforceable that makes it very challenging for us to maintain the electric reliability so that we can keep those lights on for the, the low-income and fixed-income folks that are least able to afford to make investments and most impacted by that. So I think there's, there's some challenges there. And, and another point, if you look at the fact that we're already making progress in getting there, I think it's going to be somewhat more painful than, than, than Mr. Marston described it, but also if, if we were really going to get there with business as usual, then why would you overturn 30 years of the process that we've had, this cooperative federalism, where the state has the authority to determine what its energy policy is? Why would you turn that over to the federal government and have them bring that federal efficiency into that process? Insert laugh line there. They bring that federal efficiency into that process to where it's no longer 
having the state make those determinations about how to make uh, citizens in the state of Texas have reliable power. And let me give you an example of where, why that gives me problems. If you recall back with regard to the cross-state uh, cross transport rule, CASPER, uh, whenever the EPA was evaluating that rule, one of the things that they assumed is it wouldn't have impacts on Texas, even though they were going to require us to have about a 46% reduction in, in SO2 in about a three or four month period, five months at the most. And they indicated that that wouldn't be a problem from reliability because they assumed we had 90,000 megawatts of generating capacity when we actually only had 72,000 megawatts of generating. So they thought we had 90, we had 72. The federal government is not plugged in at the state level to understand the impacts and implications of moving forward. And furthermore, once you have these federal plans, they often offer, we'll give you opportunities for a safety reliability or a reliability safety valve, they call it, where you can get some, uh, if you ask EPA, they will give you some exceptions where you can operate even though you're, you're exceeding the greenhouse gas. So for example, if you look at this plan and what it's going to do to reliability, there's concerns that during certain events and times of year, we may not be able to generate capacity to keep the lights on, especially in those areas that, uh, where we have a lot of challenges from the standpoint of, of high heat and, 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 and cold and sometimes as well. And so the, the challenge there is if you can't run those facilities, EPA will give you a waiver. But that looks to be a very tedious process and time consuming. When people are cold or hot and lives are at stake, we need to act now, and that's part of where the state do much better. And so I think it's sort of a false narrative to suggest that we should do that. If the state wants to be aggressive and do this, the state should have the right to make that on their own. Their elected officials should be the ones to say, we're going to accelerate this beyond what we've done, but we don't need the federal government to come in and say, this may be happening already, but we now want to make you do it, but we're going to put our thumb on what you're doing. And, and that tends to, I think, undermine creativity and innovation from the, from the market that we all need to get even further benefits down the road. Looks like Chairman Smith, and then I'll go to okay. Dr. Desley. Um, Brian mentioned the federal perspective, and let me give you my perspective on this, because the science committee that I chair actually had a hearing on the power plant rule uh, two months ago, and we invited Gina McCarthy, the administrator of the EPA, to appear before the committee and answer questions. And let me say at the outset, we all want clean water. We all want clean air. What we don't want are the unnecessary, burdensome regulations that uh, that frankly cost us jobs and cost uh, the American people billions and billions of dollars. My first question to Gina McCarthy about the power plant rule was, according to the data that we've seen, even if the power plant rule were completely implemented, it would have no discernible impact on climate change. And I pointed out to her that according to their own data, even if completely implemented, it would, the impact on the increase in ocean levels would be less than one one-hundredth of an inch, the thickness of three pieces of paper. She didn't deny that. She just said in response, well, it's important that we show action. Well, you've got to come up with a better reason than it's important to show action to cost the American people tens of billions of dollars and subject them to an onerous rule that has no discernible impact on the environment. Even the EPA admitted negligible impact on climate change by the power plant rule. And uh, so that's, you know, that's the kind of scrutiny I think we need to subject these various rules to. As an aside, we also, I think, would appreciate it if the EPA actually was willing to show us the data that they say justifies these regulations. Uh, I have not been able to obtain that data from the EPA. I've had to subpoena them, and they're trying to dribble out the information. But why would they hide the data that they say is the basis for these regulations. Why aren't they most more transparent with the American people? If the data show that the regulations are necessary, that's one thing. But the fact that they're hiding the data 
makes me very suspicious that either they are cherry picking the data, tampering with the data, or don't have the data. But if they've got the data and it shows what they say it does, make it public. Dr. Dessler, and then we'll go to Mr. Dessler. Yeah, so I think I'd like to address a couple of the points that were made already. So first off, I think the argument that Congressman Smith is advancing is really misleading. I mean, nobody disputes that you need to have a global agreement. I mean, you have to have a global agreement. Nobody disputes that. On the other hand, we also know that if the U.S. doesn't do anything, you won't get a global agreement. I mean, you know, China and India, they're going to look at the U.S. and they're going to say, well, they're not doing anything. You know, it's a free rider problem. And everybody who's a college student who's living in a dorm knows that there's dirty dishes in the sink because nobody wants, everyone wants to be the free rider. And so everybody has to contribute. And the, I think the U.S. does have to have leadership. I mean, speaking as a citizen here, not a scientist. Uh, the U.S. does have to have leadership because the other countries will follow us, especially if the U.S. and Europe. If the U.S. and Europe get together, I mean, wh who does China sell all their cheap shit to? I mean, they will, they will follow us. They have to follow us. They don't have any choice. India, ditto. So the U.S. has to display some leadership on this. So I think, and I think the argument that the U.S. can't do it alone, that, that's really misleading. And then let me just get to the general argument about costs and benefits because you hear a lot about billions of dollars, onerous regulations. I'm not going to talk, I mean, I agree with the congressman. I don't like onerous regulations. I don't want the government to tell me what to do. On the other hand, I think we have to realize a couple of things. First, we've been through this dance before. We've had environmental regulations over the last few decades. And in all the cases, every case I know of, uh, SO2 uh, capping in the Northeast in the 80s, uh, uh, phase out of ozone depleting substances in the 90s, uh, all of the cost estimates, so if you look at the cost estimates, some of them are outrageously high, and those are just designed to generate uh, fear in people. And then some of them are honest, but all of them turn out to be too high. And the reason is, is that you can't be pessimistic on people's innovative powers. People are smart. Companies will adapt. You always hear people say, we'll adapt to climate change. Well, companies will adapt to these things. They're smart. They want to make money. So that if the rule comes down, they'll adapt. And that's what, hap that's what the his history tells us. People will adapt to these things. So when they tell you the costs are going to be high, I don't believe them, because that's what history tells me not to believe them. That, you know, when we phase out ozone-depleting substances, I'll bet you nobody in this room actually knows when that happened, because it was so cheap when it happened, even though before it happened, you heard these apocalyptic visions about billions of dollars, people having to give up their air conditioners. I mean, that didn't happen. People are smart. People are clever. And so, uh, you know, you cannot dis dismiss that. And finally, I'll just say, you can talk about the costs of these regulations, uh, but you also have to talk about the benefits. I mean, what are, you know, the kind of cost we're talking about is a few cents per kilowatt hour, okay? So that's about the difference between wind and, and, and uh, coal-fired power plant right now. And that's maybe a couple hundred dollars a year, which is not zero, and certainly poor people can't afford it. Probably everyone in this room can afford a few hundred dollars a year, but, but you know, there are people that can't afford that, and you have to design a policy to handle that. But, the, but what do you get for that? Okay, first off, Burning coal and other fossil fuels kills tens of thousands of Americans every year. I mean, tens of thousands. Kills millions worldwide. And so, you know, that's many 9-11s every year. And so, you know, it would be good to get rid of that. Is that worth a couple hundred dollars? I mean, a few cents per kilowatt hour, a couple hundred dollars per household. You know, that's a policy decision. As a citizen, I have an opinion. But that's the kind of argument we have to make. And then that's not even counting the climate change threat. Po pollution is not an existential threat. We've been living with pollution. We can live with pollution. We have 7 billion people. We can lose a few million people a year, okay? We don't want to, but it's not going to kill us. But climate change really is an existential threat. I mean, at the upper end of it, it is really terrible. Last ice age was maybe 10 degrees Fahrenheit cooler. Those are the kind of warmings 
on the upper end we're predicting for this century. Uh, you know, and I mean, if you think we, a 10 degree rise is not going to rewrite the surface of the planet, uh, you're wrong. And I would also object to Congressman Smith's statement that you can't predict the future at all. I mean, this is physics. You know, if I take a rock up to the top and I throw it off, I can predict where it's going to go. And I can predict where the temperature is going to go, because it's physics. It is physics. It's not politics. It is physics. Mr. Marson wanted to add something, and then Chairman Shaw. Well, I, I do have an analogy that I, I use about doing a little stuff to make things better. Um, I recently watched some old video of my daughter in my, my, grand, my, my parents' swing pool, and I remember a conversation when I said, honey, uh, you cannot pee in the swimming pool. And she said, well, there's all this water. Why does it matter? That's what those who say is all right for us to pollute a little bit now because it doesn't matter because we have a big atmosphere. We've got to stop peeing in the pool. <laughs> and we do our part, and everybody else has to do the part. Add it. There's, a, there's a rule of addition. A little bit added to a lot of other little bits is a lot, and that's what's going on right now. Chairman Shaw. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, there's some, some fundamental differences of, of approaching some of these issues. When you're a state regulatory agency, is, is, I'm the chairman of TCQ, there's a couple questions that we're sort of, I think, jumping the gun on. The first question from the standpoint of evaluating the clean power plan is not, will it cost us more jobs? Uh, is it, it's not, uh, are there going to be some benefits that I'd like to have from it? You know, one of the first things you have to look at is, is there authority to do that action? And are there policy considerations that need to be considered? And, and so part of the, the challenge that I have from the standpoint of just saying this is a huge opportunity for us or this is worth it from a bargaining standpoint is there's not authority in the Clean Air Act, specifically the section of, of the Clean Air Act that authorizes the Clean Power Plant, it's section 111D, which is for existing sources. It doesn't say anything about being able to get emissions to a point that helps you in bargaining. It actually talks about being able to make determination about what controls can be put on. It's what's called best systems of emissions reductions. And historically, throughout the entire time that this has been applied, it's always been what controls could be put on a facility to reduce emissions of concern. Uh, the parallel in this case is what could be done to a coal-fired power plant to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. That's what's legally and what has historically been done. The, all of the other, that accounts for, by the way, less than uh, Texas projection on the efficiency that could be gained from that approach is they're using 2.5% improvement in the heat rate efficiency which is difficult to say that it translates into an even a 2.5% reduction instead of the roughly 30% reduction that they get to in the clean power plant. The rest of those reduction emissions that they're targeting are based on changing energy policy, changing how the state dispatches electricity. The reason that the state of Texas has had historically affordable electricity rates and therefore has had a lot of jobs associated with manufacturing is because we've had policies in place that dictate that energy is, dis is dispatched. In other words, who generates electricity in the state of Texas is based on the economics. That's something that the state has done, that the PUC and ERCOT work to make that happen. In order to comply with this rule, EPA has added on to what they're legally allowed within the Clean Air Act and saying, we want you to dispatch zero emitters before you dispatch the coal-fired power plants and before you do natural gas. They've also, in order to get there, we would have to grow our renewables, primarily wind, grow our renewables at a rate that matches our highest ever rate for, I think it's 2023 through 2030. Throughout those years, 
we would have to bring wind on at an exceptionally rapid pace. That is something that the state can decide to do. That's something that the federal government could decide to do if they do it through legislation, if they go through Congress. But they don't have the authority within the EPA to mandate that. And even if that's something that's good to do, it's not good policy to ignore what you have legal authority to do just because you want that outcome. Even if I want that outcome, I don't have the luxury of ignoring what the state legislature does and what the governor signs into practice. We have to follow that law. And if we, if we, ever, if we decide we're going to turn our back on the rule of law and we're going to do things that we want to do, that's great as long as the people that agree with you are in power and making decisions, but that's not so good whenever someone else is in power that you don't agree with because they're no longer constrained by those rules and those laws. And so I think it's really important that we consider that. So we've actually, we're going to have to go to questions, Chairman. Okay. Uh, uh, as point, as people point, are, you feel free to line up. Uh, we'll take as many questions <clears throat> as we have time for. But I'll ask a quick question while people are doing that, which is I want to talk a little bit about preparation, what Texas can do or what it should do. Dr. Nielsen-Gammon, you told me in May, we have the advantage of having non-zero information about how the climate's changing, and we're acting as though the information content is zero. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Dessler, anyone else who very quickly wants to weigh in, what can Texas be doing or should Texas be doing specifically to prepare? Let's forget about yeah. reducing carbon emissions. What can Texas be doing that it's not to prepare yeah, for this? I'll tell you something I told, uh, I testified in Austin for the state legislature in I think it was 2006, right after I got to A&M. And I said at the time, I said, you know, you have a choice uh, because, you know, climate change is real. You may not believe it now, but you will believe, you know, in 10 or 20 years, everyone's going to say they always believed it. You know, the science, and, uh, you know, it, it's here to stay. You will never live a day in your life when climate change is not an issue. I said, your choice is you can incentivize the policies that develop Texas as a leader in green energy, and then we'll be selling our technology to China and France. Or we can just say, we can talk about, you know, Chairman Shaw's talking all about the legal issues. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But the courts will decide that. Okay, it's going to go between the fourth senior court. They'll make a decision about whether the president has policy, president has authority to do that. But I mean, it, regardless, we have a decision about whether we're going to we're going to develop the technology and sell it, or we're going to sit on our butts and then we're going to be buying it. And that's essentially what's happened in the ten years. Uh, you've seen uh, China become a leader in solar, Germany become a leader in wind, and so we were essentially we're abdicating our ability to be a first mover. There's, you, know, you talk about first mover advantage. The people who move first, like California, they will reap the benefits of this, because it's going to happen. I mean, you know, history, this is history. And it's going, you know, there will come a point where everybody says, yeah, this is a problem, we've got to do it. And you know, do you want to do it now, or do you want to be dragged kicking and screaming? And apparently, we want to be dragged kicking and screaming. I think that's time for questions. So uh, how about over here, sir? Uh, hi, my name is Tyler Allard. I'm a law student here at UT. So my question is for Chairman Shaw, basically in response to what you were just saying. Um, so it sounded like you were articulating a lot of the legal arguments against the Clean Power Plan, and inevitably it'll be litigated and go to the courts. If, if you know, if it's upheld, is TCEQ, is the state working on what Texas's plan will be if it has to comply with the Clean Power Plan? Because also in response to what you said earlier, to me it sounded like when you were saying you know, these burdensome, we don't want the federal thumb telling us exactly what we have to do. As far as I understand, you know, this clean power plan is designed where EPA will set what the threshold will be, how Texas has to, what the level of reduction Texas will comply with. But then it's up to the state to pick and choose and decide just how it actually wants to bring emissions down. And it would only be in the case of a state not coming up with its own state-designed plan that a federally designed federal compliance plan would be imposed on the state. So I guess my question is, if it is legally upheld, 
is the state working on a Texas-specific plan so that the state does, in fact, have more of a uniquely best suited to Texas way of complying to bring reductions? Thank you for that question. It is a question we as journalists have had. Is Texas working on its own version of following the Clean Power Plan? Because we've been down this road before, and last time Texas didn't follow it, the feds came up with the plan. So what's, what's the plan for that? Well, and, and, and I'll say, to address the first part of your comment there is, recognize that we have an obligation to consider the, the legal side of that as well. It doesn't mean that's all we do, but we, we do consider the science as well as the legal side of that. And, and certainly from the state standpoint, this, this process that EPA has gone through where they had the proposal and then very extensive uh, rewrite of the plan for the, the final plan, uh, we still ha it has, still hasn't been published. And so we, we still have not committed to what we're going to do uh, because of the complex nature of this. It's not because they didn't stick within what the statutes talk about, this gets into things beyond my agency. And so in order to fully inform the governor and the and lieutenant governor and the attorney general and other state leadership, we're parsing through a lot of, of pages and we're looking at a lot of different strategies. And so we're keeping our options open at this point, but we are actively working together to develop all contingencies at this point, that, which would include submitting no plan, submitting a plan, submitting the plan. So we're, we're basically at this point still an all the above approach to that because, frankly, we, we have to make sure that we're following legally what we should do, which we believe is the, the law is, or the rule is written is, is not legal, but we need to make sure that we move forward in a path that protects uh, Texans now and long term. So it's, it's a very challenging process to get through, and we're uh, working with, with leadership and, and planning meetings to, to have some public process as well. Okay. Sir, your question? Good morning. My name is Sudhiro uh, I serve as the Feminine. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I serve as the Consul General of France in Houston. And of course, climate is a top priority for us because we're the host country to the 21st Conference of the Parties on the United Nations Convention on Climate Change. That's the reason why we're trying to elevate uh, French climate American talks. And we're having events to that effect uh, in Houston on the 26th of October, in Austin on the 13th of November. Which brings me to my question. What can Texas expect from the COP21, the Global Conference on Climate Change? And what can you bring to the table? Thank you. Anyone want to take that on? <laughs> no, not at Texas. Well, I, sadly, what I expect is other states will be there showing what they're doing, attracting business because of that, uh, understanding what, it, what is known. Texas will be there with a few folks saying that climate change is not real and we'll look silly, and green businesses will not want to come to a place where their elected officials are, officials are silly. I, I'm, I'm sad to say that, but I've, this is not my first rodeo. Let's hold any applause, please. I think one, one of the uh, sort of the message that you could take from this stance, and, and not specifically speaking to the media you're talking about, but realistically realize that part of the reason that we're taking the approach we are to follow the science and make sure that we maintain those good jobs and, and ability for people to have good jobs so we can afford to make future environmental advancements is so we don't become California. And, and that's part of the challenge is, is California has been a leader, but you've seen it leading not to the kind of solutions that I think that Texans want and deserve. And so I think that uh, we will continue to advocate for better, cleaner energy technologies and new technologies, but not from the standpoint of just suggesting that we're going to artificially 
deny use of some of our existing natural resources to bridge us to that new I guess, uh, energy what's that, future. Can you clarify so. what's that based on? You say California is somehow failing. I mean, what, I, I, it, it, was, it was a joke about California's jobs and people moving from California. Right. It, was, it was intended as a, as, as, a, as a jab at California in all fun. So. They're growing faster <laughs> than we are, and they got half of all clean tech investments in the country. They're losing population. And because of our policy, we are losing out. I'm sorry. Texas has grown by, I believe the number for last year was 12 to 1,500 people a day. Uh, over 100 a day are coming to Austin. There's, there's a lot of Where good things have happening jobs, in Texas. Clean jobs. Well, California's losing population. Based on this no, discussion, not. I'm going to make sure we have a Texas versus California panel next right. year. Maybe there you go. go. And I, I have some good friends from California that would, we would yeah, enjoy we'll giving fun. each other ribbing over. Uh, like but for now, that. let's go to the uh, question over here on the right. Uh, good morning. My name is Jim Scott, and I've got a, a question for Dr. Gammon, uh, Nielsen Gammon. Uh, uh, Oklahoma has something called the Oklahoma Mesonet. Uh, they call it a world-class network of monitoring stations across the state. Uh, Texas doesn't have something like that. What, what is that an example? Uh, and what other examples would you recommend uh, to the chairman and to the, uh, the congressman of things that the Texas needs to be a world-class uh, leader in, in environmental monitoring? Yeah, you know, thank you. You're right that Oklahoma has has really a mission to set the standard worldwide. We'll station every county, measuring measuring what's happening in the atmosphere, what's happening in the soil, and so forth. Uh, we actually tried to do the same thing in Texas. Uh, it, it got basically as far as one missed phone call during a legislative session about 15 years ago. The big challenge with it, which Oklahoma didn't have and um, West Texas didn't have because there is a mesonet in West Texas that's run by Texas Tech, is that a mesonet uh, is, is very useful to, to nobody but somewhat helpful to just about everybody. So it's hard to find one agency that would really benefit and to take, take the lead on it. Um, what I'm trying to work toward at this point is having, having a mesonet built from the ground up so that uh, um, individual counties, individual cooperative electric utilities could sponsor one, two, or three stations, uh, measuring wind, being in touch with severe weather, measuring water flow, being in touch with drought, and, and have a, a central group such as a university consortium um, organize the data, provide tools to make use of the data, and, um, and uh, main, maintain it so that it uh, uh, is valuable going forward into the future. Um, because it really is something that would benefit everybody. Thanks. Let's go to the next question here. Uh, thank you. Al Hardin, a citizen of Austin. Uh, my question is for Chairman Smith. Uh, you characterized the Climate Protection Plan as being a very small solution, a tenth of a percent or three sheets of paper of uh, seawater right. rise, and I agree with you completely. It is a very small solution. Uh, but it seems to be the best the administration can do with all action blocked in Congress. So my question is, how do we get a 1%, a 10%, a 50% solution through Congress? And I'm, I'm wondering in particular, would your committee be willing to hear of serious testimony on climate change and look into the possibility of a carbon tax that would drive innovation and also drive people away from the use of carbon as a policy solution to work on climate change. Okay. Uh, two or three uh, questions there, and let me respond to them in the order you mentioned them. Uh, first of all, to my knowledge, the administration has never hesitated to propose anything uh, because they thought Congress would approve or disapprove. 
uh, witness all these regulations that I, uh, that I pointed to. The EPA is in a position where they can implement a lot of these regulations without approval of Congress, and that's why we have hearings on them, find out the pros and cons, and in several instances, the, they've been restrained by, by courts. Um, as far as climate change goes, we've had several hearings. And let me just mention um, maybe the most trenchant remark I have heard on climate change was told me by an individual who is a bona fide climate scientist who absolutely believes that most uh, climate change is caused by human activity. And uh, I don't know if he meant this to be as trenchant as I took it, but he said, remember the distinction between an environmentalist and a climate scientist. An environmentalist is by nature an advocate, an activist. He said a climate scientist is by nature um, challenging what they've come up with. He said a climate scientist is going to recognize all the variables. He said a climate scientist will never make a prediction about what's going to happen in 20 years, much less than 100 years, because of those variables and because of the lack of certainty. And I thought that was really, really an important distinction. And I, I might add, too, and I'm not in the business today of giving advice to anybody, but it seems to me if there were fewer exaggerations, if there was less alarmism, if there were less fewer doomsday predictions, uh, that there would be more credibility with this, those same individuals and what they might propose as solutions. Uh, Gallup recently did a poll, and they asked the American people among uh, which of the 15 different subjects they cared most about. Climate change was dead last, 15 out of 15. And I think it was because people know these are exaggerations. And if they were more realistic, if climate scientists, not climate scientists, if those who were the activists uh, were more willing to, I think, not stretch the truth and be more factual and be more accurate, I think they would be more successful. I want to quickly follow up on that before we get to our next question, which is, is there anything that you think Congress should do, Chairman? They, there, has, there have been attempts to get climate legislation through Congress, haven't been successful. Uh, we're at, we're, where are we at now? And, and, and you know, there's a lot of arguments from Chairman Shaw and others that it's not the EPA that should be doing this, it's Congress. What can Congress do? Should Congress do anything to address this? Well, what I think Congress should do is what we're trying to do on the Science Committee. Uh, we oversee agency budgets totaling about $40 billion. 80% of that is research and development. I would like to see more money go into research and development for all types of energy alternative forms of energy included. And I think if we put more money into the R&D, we're investing in the future, we're going to have technological breakthroughs of the kind I mentioned a while ago that we've had in space and energy and other areas and, and, and electronics. And put that money into uh, research, but don't pick winners and losers. I don't think the government should be in the business of picking winners and losers, whether it be an individual company or an individual energy sector. Let's Get rid of, let's get research and development money going to all forms of energy, and as I say, not single out one over the other. Can I, I, can I, I have to object to your characterization about alarmism, Congressman. Um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't talking about anyone on the panel. No, 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 in general, <laughs> the scientific community. I think the scientific community. You shouldn't take it personally. <laughs> no, I, I do take it personally. I'm a scientist. My job is getting the right answer. It's not, you know, I've, I'm a citizen too, so obviously I have opinions. I have kids, I can't turn that off in my brain. But my job is to get the right answer. And I look at the scientific community, and I don't see people there that are exaggerating. If you believe people are being alarmist, it's because the worst case scenarios are alarming. 
That's just the fact. That's just the yeah. fact. Okay? And this I and I don't know who you are talking to about being unable to make predictions 10 years or 20 years in the future, but that's ridiculous. I mean, this is physics. Okay? I mean, the physics you're, tells us if you're You're an environmentalist, and I'm talking about a scientist. I, no, I'm a scientist. And I'm telling you, the physics tells you that. I, but don't you believe in the scientific method? Absolutely. Well, you're not sounding like it, but that's... I, no, I believe <laughs> I, No, I spent 20 years studying this problem. We'll have a panel problem. next year on the scientific method, too. So let's, let's go. Thank you for waiting. Hi, I'm Haley Morrill, and I'm a student at Shriner University, um, and my question is for Congressman Smith. Um, I know that you are a supporter of free trade, um, especially internationally, um, and I wanted to know how can we balance um, free trade as well as uh, climate change and those controls, because as was said in the panel, we're supposed to be leaders, um, you know, within this protecting the, the world from climate change. So how do you balance policies of free trade with policies of controlling um, emissions and things like that with countries like China, where they have huge emissions, but they're also one of our biggest trading partners? Yeah. Um, thanks for the question. Schreiner University is in my district, by the way, which goes from San Antonio to Austin, includes the Hill Country. I'm not sure I see a contradiction between free trade and climate change, to tell you the truth. I generally support free trade, you're right. Uh, as you just pointed out correctly, China is the greatest emitter of carbon emissions. Uh, they're actually increasing their emission while the United States is decreasing our emissions, which is good. And, uh, but uh, if you're saying we shouldn't trade with people like China uh, because, of their, because of their policies and their carbon emissions, um, I'm not, I see free trade as being a separate issue, and it might well be that by trading with them, uh, we can bring them along, get them to use modern technology or better technology. Uh, but you're right, they're going the wrong direction. They're setting a bad example when it comes to climate change. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, I'm Robert Harris. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the Energy Institute here. And my question's for Chairman Shaw. Um, I really like the comments you made about markets. I think it's worth mentioning that in Texas, once we deregulate the electricity system, there was a very fast build-out of combined cycle natural gas, which is the most efficient and also one of the cheapest and cleanest forms of fossil generation of the day. But at the same time, um, now since the, the boom in hydraulic fracturing and um, the, the shale revolution, the price of natural gas has fallen to the point where natural gas power, coal power, are essentially competitive on a real-time basis. Yes, but my question is that you know, planners at the same time know that natural gas will have an easier time complying with environmental regulations in the future because there's less pollution that also produces about half the carbon of coal. The power plants are cleaner and they can be located in cities and used for combined heat and power like the plant that towers the University of Texas and the likes here today. But those benefits aren't reflected in the market in any way whatsoever because there's not a price on carbon. And so if we want to use our markets to try and make our electricity system better, don't we have to show the advantage that natural gas has over coal, for example? And there are certainly many ways that you can go about tackling that. And I think part of the challenge and the question that needs to be answered is at what cost and, and what mechanism is going to work to ensure that you protect the, the reliability of your electric generation supply, as well as recognizing that because natural gas is, is low today doesn't mean it will be low 10 years from now. But certainly, if you look at the proposed clean power plan, natural gas was sort of the bridge. That was, a lot of folks saw that as being a way that was going to benefit natural gas. And you look in the final plan, 
it appears that EPA has sort of decided to go ahead and go not only beyond coal, but to go beyond natural gas in that as well. And with some of the proposed regulations, there's some uncertainty there, which is why, uh, one, it makes it a challenge to know how to build and what to build. Uh, probably the reason we've not... I'm not talking about the clean power plant, but what I'm saying is when we're making decisions and we're going to use markets, sure. aren't our markets broken if they're not capturing that major externality that exists between coal and natural gas, where coal is clearly inferior when you look at the coal market externalities, but when you actually look at the markets today, they seem like even... There, there certainly are advantages to looking at markets to drive solutions. And the key is, how do you frame that? Because it, it's a policy that, and the reason I can use the 111D is because you have to have the right legal structure to get there. And so the state legislature could pass legislation to change our energy policy to get there. The federal government could, could approve legislation to make it get there. And the challenge is not done that way because there's a lot of trade-offs. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying that there are trade-offs associated with that one of which would be, what does that do to your ability to have market signals so that your electricity utility rates are low, and balancing that with environmental. I'm not at all suggesting that there aren't opportunities to have trading programs or to have things that help to, to put those values in place. I'm saying most of those values need to be determined by elected officials, not by appointed officials. And I certainly don't have the authority within, within TCEQ to, to go down that path. It is 10.51, and thank so I'm question. going to have to, uh, to end this panel. But thank you so much. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get all the questions. Good going. Uh, thanks so much for being here, everyone. Thank you to our panelists.